joining me today is Dr. Osman Attar. He has a doctorate in psychiatry and is finishing his professional training to be board licensed. Osman, welcome to the show. Thank you. I, I appreciate that, Brother Kareem. It's such a loaded term today, the Greek mythology narcissist or, uh, you know, which has a lot of interesting meaning behind it. But this is actually a really serious thing. And it's something that even Islamically, we should be terrified of because a lot of people may throw that word around like, oh, I think my husband's a narcissist. I think my son's a narcissist or whatever. And it's like, how do we really know when to use that word or not to use that word? So why don't we get into the definition here and and some of the conditions or, or criteria? quick thing that I wanted to add is is that it's kind of unfortunate like in the field of mental health and psychiatry that a lot of our terms have become part of like popular uh, parlance if you say like oh he's so bipolar or he's so narcissistic we we have very precise definitions in what's called the DSM diagnostic and statistical manual in psychiatry so what it truly means to be a narcissist is someone who just feels incredibly self-important to the extent that it's affecting their relationships and at times their work. Um, and we have a series of nine criteria and the, the individual has to fulfill five of them to truly be diagnosed with what's called narcissistic personality disorder. It's, it is based on the myth of Narcissus, who was the Greek youth who rejected one of the gods uh, because he didn't want to fall in love with him and then like the god cursed him to fall in love with his own reflection, and then he just kept staring at himself until he died, As for, if I'm correct. <laughs> no, something to that effect, I remember. Yeah, something to that effect. So, you know, obviously, like you said, it, it's based on, like, this Greek mythology and, and has been developed to a greater extent in the 20th century, but the disease itself, which I, I really want to talk about today, is ever-present in the Quran, and something that we as Muslims should be very careful about and Hopefully, we can develop our own methodology and our own ways of speaking about this um, that, that isn't so reliant on you know, Western mythology because we have the same tradition to be careful of, of these types of illnesses or spiritual and psychological illnesses. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think this is important because, you know, some people might go, how is narcissism reflecting in the Quran? But the reality is narcissism is about a false image of oneself or a promotion, a promotion of falsehood, right? So it's very dejelic if you think about it, right? And that is contrary to the truth of what it means to be a, a believer, right? Which is all about bearing witness to the truth. It's about being humble. It's about cultivating oneself in face of the divine presence. But narcissism, is actually connected to some other terms that we find in ilm al-nafs or Islamic psychology, such as tafakhur or takabbur, you know, fakhar and and, and uh, to think oneself as kabir, even though only Allahu Akbar. So we're going to get into that today. So Usman, why don't you share with us what are the criterion according to the DSM-5 that would suggest a higher likelihood of narcissism in somebody? Yeah, sure. So there's nine criteria. Um, the first one is called like a grandiose sense of sense of self-importance. So basically, thinking that you're better than other people. The second one is 
being extremely preoccupied with fantasies of success, power, beauty, ideal love. So you, you're constantly thinking about what you can do you know, with whatever talents that you have or may not even have um, to prove that you're better than other people. The third is a belief in being special and unique, um, and you can only be understood by other people who are special or who have high status. The fourth is that you desire excessive admiration from other people. So it's not just that you feel like you're better than people, but you really want other people to fall in line with that delusion that you have. And then you get into a sense of entitlement and then interpersonally exploitive behavior, meaning that you tend to take advantage of other people. A lack of empathy is key in narcissism. You, you have trouble really understanding like the emotional component of how others feel. Um, and part of that can be just as a result of the illness or the disorder, you, you tend to view other people as just objects to get what you want. After that is envy. Envy is a, a key part of narcissism. And then lastly, just uh, de- demonstrating like arrogant and haughty behaviors throughout your interactions with other people. So as you can see, a lot of these bleed into the other um, criteria. But overall, it's um, just a, a sense of self-importance that you desire to assert um, by requiring admiration, fantasies of excess you know, power or brilliance, um, belief of, in being special, and being exploitative and lacking empathy. That's a lot of what being a narcissist is, along with being envious as well. So the envy comes in because once the narcissist kind of sees that there's other people out there, which there invariably will be, who are better than them, then their their ego just cannot handle that. So that's what it's about. Interesting. Yeah, because when you, when you read those, you know, someone might go, oh, no, I think I might be a narcissist. I mean, I definitely think about how can I be successful or, you mm-hmm. know, what are my unique qualities or gifts to give to the world um, and, you know, so on, right? But then, you know, you start to qualify it a bit more and there's this sense of, you know, everything almost has to be a certain way for the narcissist. He needs praise or she needs praise exactly. or they're, they're entitled to things that are unrealistic or, you know, absurd perhaps you know the the constant need for admiration or and of course the scary stuff like manipulating people's emotions and lacking mm-hmm. empathy so let's get into this and, and and maybe describe more why we should even talk about this and how serious is it is it more of a pop culture thing or do we have some real implications as to the danger of this state of of humankind what, one of the reasons why i'm passionate about this is that you know there's not too much data about this except for a few studies but the problem is increasing according to the literature. Um, So one of the interesting studies that I'm going to talk about is that um, in the U.S., um, there's been a tracking of how narcissistic college students are since the 1970s. And it's based on a scale called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. Um, And in the 1970s, that, that score was pretty low, but it's been steadily increasing since that time. And there's a lot of reasons why, potentially, that could explain this increase in narcissism, which we can talk about more. 
but one of the reasons to talk about it is definitely it's become uh, almost an epidemic. And how do we know that? And why do you think that's happening, that it's becoming more epidemic? You're saying this means it's becoming far more common than we should than we should be comfortable with, correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, so consistently, you know, what you see in the literature is that the people who actually qualify for narcissistic personality disorder, it's anywhere between 5 to 10% of the population which would actually meet the criteria based on the DSM. But if you look at people who have significant narcissistic traits, which could still be limiting their potential with you know, relationships or um, their careers, that could be much higher. Um, and that's like what's reflected in the score, because the score is going to be reflecting not just people who have the disorder, but just the traits in general. The reasons that you got into, like, why is this increasing? I, I do think there's two things, really, that's driving this increase. The first thing is that, as you know, and, and you are, uh, mashallah, you know, more experienced with, than me and, and a little bit older, um, even though always youthful. <laughs> you, you would know this better than me, Brother Kareem, that um, children today um, and people, I guess, millennials, which would be my generation, um, we were raised overwhelmingly with the belief from our parents that we could do whatever we wanted. Uh, which started in the 80s when um, popular psychology really stressed the self-esteem movement, which believed that children should be encouraged to have high self-esteem in order to be successful in life. And what's wrong, what's wrong with that? Well, the thing is that, you know, self-esteem can really get you so far um, because, you know, failure is also a part of a, uh, a successful upbringing, believe it or not, you know, learning to deal with that failure. And when you get this message from your primary caregivers, like, you know, you can do whatever you want, you can be president, you're my princess, you're a king, etc., that leads to uh, extreme disappointment early on. You know, say, for example, like when the, the child is disciplined by a teacher or by another authority figure, and the, the reaction tends to be unhealthy because they don't have those coping mechanisms to really learn that, okay, I can make mistakes and I'm not perfect. And making mistakes is not a bad thing. And that goes into the second thing that I want to talk about is that because we, um, we're all, you know, basically inundated with social media all the time, especially since the mid-2000s, and the type of perception that gives people is that, you know, basically... What, what's called FOMO or fear of missing out. You know, everyone else around me has a perfect life based on social media, based on this illusion that we project of ourselves, which I am guilty of as well. You know, we, no one's showing, you know, like their, when they wake up in the morning, what they look like, or, you know, even using the restroom or like very personal things about themselves. It's all about the highlight reel and that, that image of perfection, that image of like the, the popularity that we all kind of desire from social media is definitely feeding into narcissism. Right. So, so basically, this super glossy, polished, exactly. artificially coded, if you will, image of ourselves. That's that's part of why why social media could be detrimental in that way. And the other point you mentioned earlier, which is fascinating, is with too much, um, f you know, fueling of self esteem, we actually uh, leave a person in, in unable to actually cope with the inevitable ups and downs of life. So so making mistakes and learning from our failures is part of a part of growth itself. And I would also like to interject on an Islamic uh, psychological 
psychological point that too much self-esteem could lead to also the delusion of self-sufficiency, which only belongs to Allah. And so that yeah. also can, I can see how that also creates this idea of, you know, how a narcissist uh, can evolve over time where they think, you know, all I need is myself and everybody else is going to be utilized for my own value. But let's continue. Oh, yeah, I really appreciate it. And you stated it very articulately. Exactly what I was trying to say is that, you know, uh, from an Islamic perspective, to have high self-esteem really doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, um, like from a Quranic perspective. Um, and that doesn't mean to be a doormat, you know, like there's kind of like this middle path, which we really need to embody all of us is that we understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the source of, of all of our good qualities. But, you know, we can be courageous, we can be outspoken, but, but never demeaning necessarily. Where does this narcissism come from as a personality complex? What, what, what's your, what can you teach us about that? I think from an Islamic psychological perspective, it's, it's easy to pinpoint, but we'll get to that in a, in a bit. Why don't you tell us more about what is the current uh, academia, at least in Western schools of thought, what are they suggesting around the sources of narcissism? Yeah, sure. So even in academia, the, the theories are kind of nebulous. But in the mid-20th century, there were a few key uh, theorists who basically felt that it was related to very early childhood experiences, um, developing what would be later classified as narcissistic personality disorder. And I'm talking about really before age four. So at that time, if the parent is either not showing enough affection, they're showing too much unwarranted praise, which we talked about then some children develop a, a coping mechanism, which would be to become narcissistic. And I'll explain that. So people may think like, so what about like, you know, the trauma of being neglected? How does that make someone narcissistic? So the thought process is that if the, the parent and the primary caregivers didn't show that, you know, that love and affection with appropriate boundaries and kind of like that middle way that I'm talking about, um, the child will then believe in themselves that their desire for self-sufficiency uh, and prestige can compensate that lack of love that they got when they were a kid. So think about like, you know, someone who's survived like horrific abuse, um, emotional, even, you know, like physical, sometimes they can become narcissistic because they have a deep lack of trust of other people and they really feel like in order to survive, they, they have to become you know, godlike in some way. So if I were to give a little example here, so it's kind of like you take, let's say, the super popular, you know, football player or super popular princess, you know, of high school, she could become narcissistic or he can become narcissistic because everyone's constantly, you know, breathing into them this uh, pomposity, right? And just you're so good and you're so pretty and you're the you're the yes. coolest and you're, you know, everyone wants to be like you. So that can be, you, you can now start to take that on as, wow, I must be superior than all these other lower life forms, right? Then you could also take the, you know, let's say the kid who was, you know, neglected at home, maybe abused and furthermore abused or bullied at school, you know, this kind Kind of complex of being a, a, know, high, a yeah a high school reject you know so you're like this forever recovering high school reject 
And over time, that could make you be like, you know what, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to prove to everyone that I'm not this loser or this and that, and I'm going to become wealthy. And then that guy, you know, starts Tesla or something, you know, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> who knows yeah. You know? Or, or commits a serial killing. They could be a person who starts a huge company, or they could even become like a sociopath or, or, or psychopath, exactly. you're saying, yeah, right? 100%. Because the empathy gets lost too, because the person never experienced empathy towards them as humans. So how are they ever going to give that to others? And that could perhaps lead to some versions of this. Yeah, I believe so. Um, I think, you know, childhood bullying is definitely a part of this. Um, some people react well. Um, and some people react in, in a lot of anger, rage, desire for vengeance, envy, which we talked about as one of the criteria. I do think, you know, based on like what the the literature shows us, it is still like based on this kind of like defective parenting um, at a very early age. But those experiences that happen in elementary and middle and high school can definitely solidify that, you know, disease, basically. And so, like, you know, with the case that you were mentioning of, like, the the homecoming queen or the football player who's a star, he may be fed, you know, lots of unwarranted praise starting early on, you know, before elementary school, which made him or her desire status from an, a very early age, basically. And that, that desire for status that would ultimately lead to the same pathology. Right. So these belief system towers in our psychological metropolis over time, if I'm always handed bricks that are, you are amazing. And I never got any bricks that said, you know, you've got to work on yourself or you, you, you have some issues or you're not patient enough or you actually have, you know, you're cruel. Uh, that's, you know, a person, the reason why they sometimes they can't handle it is because most of the material that they used to construct their self-identity has only been positive, let's say, or overpraising. And so it's very hard to, let's say, integrate otherwise, right? And so essentially, I, 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 he, I feel like the, the main crux here is that it's extremes. It's extremes, Extreme. extremes yes. of uh, inflating one's ego, or it's an extreme of uh, depleting one's ego, or it's an extreme of having no human empathy, compassion, vulnerability exposed to this young person or this individual. And so all of that lack of healthy balance and harmony will create also extreme uh, consequences, perhaps. 100%. Yeah, you said it much better than me. <laughs> but that's that's exactly on the money. So tell us more about this is a community health issue. I've certainly can say that it exists in our community, the Muslim community, maybe even more yes. so than than other communities. Why? Because we have this whole external codependency almost trend where all of our value is externalized by parental authority, you know, religious institutional authority, communitarian or cultural authority. But let's talk more about how do narcissists generally exploit others? And what exactly is this phrase called flying monkeys that you wanted to unpack for us here today? When you look at the criteria, the narcissist really needs excessive admiration to fulfill the delusion that they have about themselves, that they are better than you um, and all people. They consciously or unconsciously look for impressionable people around them who can support that status that they have. So in popular psychology, a term that I find very useful, which is not an official term in psychiatry, is something called flying monkeys, which basically means that the narcissist will surround himself or, or herself with yes men who basically will do the dirty work that they need um, to punish people who don't fall in line with the delusion that they have and will also, you know, 
provide that steady stream of praise and comfort um, to deal with any kind of ego challenges that they have. As an example, you know, like if you think about like maybe the community auntie or uncle um, who believes that, you know, she's a hotshot or, you know, I'm a big boss as, as a physician of, of some kind in, you know, your small Islamic community in the U.S. Um, and then, you know, other people may be like, okay, well, you know, you are a well-spoken, et cetera, et cetera, but you can't treat other people like that. What he or she will tend to do is surround themselves with people who can deflect that, that um, criticism, even if it's well-formed and well-meaning, and then also punish that person who is criticizing them. So it's not about the truth anymore or what's practical or what's, what's useful for the community or even the, the subject. It's about making sure I stay on top. Exactly, exactly. Making sure that, that, you know, what I believe about myself, which I loved how you said it was the jolly, because that's exactly what it is. It's, it's deceptive. And what, yeah, Dajalic means deceptive or it means that which is, it's, pro, it's promoting falsehood in the name of truth, just for those who don't know, but continue. Yes, 100%. So they, they will do whatever it takes to, um, to keep the status quo. Um, and which is, you know, from a kind of like a spiritual level, it's, it's the exact opposite of, of truly promoting a just society. Because it's not about virtues at this point, because you can't transcend your own ego or your own self if you're functioning from these narcissistic mechanisms. That's, that's the point, right? right? If there are these flying monkeys, you're saying there's like these yes men or yes women, and the narcissist will surround, one of their strategies is they will surround themselves with people who will constantly validate them, feed their ego. And if you don't, they will actually attack you and undermine your ego so that you submit or bend into the narrative of the narcissist. Is this correct? Yes, absolutely. This, this doesn't allow a person to witness the truth, right? Or submit or be humble. All those things are considered very humanistic and certainly Islamic qualities. So who, what would be the scapegoat in this situation? The scapegoat is the target. Um, the scapegoat is the individual who takes on unnecessary blame so that the narcissist can feel good about themselves. In terms of the psychological understanding that the narcissist has about himself or herself, he or she knows deep down inside that there is something really wrong. But in order to deal with that sense of inadequacy that sometimes comes up to the surface, they will project all those negative qualities that they feel about themselves onto a target, which uh, is called the scapegoat, uh, which can be in a family or a community. It can be one of the children. It can be the wife or the husband. And once that scapegoat takes on all those negative qualities, then the flying monkeys will come in and also enforce that basically that myth that is created that, you know, so-and-so Ahmed or, you know, Zena is defective. She's terrible. You know, she gossips all the time when, you know, the reality will be that the narcissist himself or herself has all of those qualities. But in order to survive, in order to 
prop up this image of perfection, they need a scapegoat. And it's also, it's a defense mechanism. It's a force field, a force, like a shield that's trying to also protect the agenda of the narcissist. And I can actually think of two real cases that happened this year. One was you had, let's say, a female who's constantly talking about how religious she is and how her husband is not religious and how she's so paranoid that he might be cheating on her because he's not, he's not on the dean. And turns out she was the one who was all those things. Allah revealed that. Oh, SubhanAllah. Wow. Another case, that, yeah. a, a guy, you know, is picking on his, let's say, son-in-law and always claiming that the son, the son-in-law is after the family's money and he's, you know, marrying the daughter because he has some, you know, financial agenda. Then it turns out that the, the father-in-law is the one who was actually doing some shady stuff with his finances. And, you know, mm-hmm. this was all his projection because oftentimes, Osman, at least for me, when I, I, I witness this very thing you're describing, it's when the person has this very convinced and powerful story about another, but there is zero evidence. Yeah. It's just, it's just, they just keep going through it like a broken record. It's like a, it's on loop. And, and somehow by constantly repeating the meaning of this narrative and, and displaying, and these types of people will also call like everybody in their family and post on social media about the, the scapegoat or the target, right? Because they want to create the story fast before that actual person is able to go and speak their own truth, right? Let's say the, the scapegoat or the target here. This is also a way that it manifests. So how do you, how do we connect this now? Because, you know, this is actually, as it comes more clear for everybody, this is very central to what we need to avoid as far as diseases of the heart from an Islamic psychological paradigm. Let's get into what are the Islamic psychological points on this? Because I can think of right now Iblis and Far'un as the archetypes of narcissism, right? And maybe I'm wrong, but let's break this down. If you look at the case of Fir'aun, his yes man, his flying monkeys were the other magicians, right? Who did the dirty work? Who he convinced, and he said, you know, if you if you do this, you'll be of the Muqarrabun, you'll be very close to me, if you defeat Musa alayhi salam. So bri- bribing is included, not just um, th- not just threats, right? You can bribe. Bribing, yeah, like you you will get a special status just because you'll be closer to me, you know, the godlike figure. Mm-hmm. And and in that case, you know, just to, to quickly go through this, and we'll, we'll be talking about this in detail, inshallah. In that case, what was amazing is that when they, they saw the truth of Musa al-Islam's mission and what he brought as a miracle, which was not magic, they actually refused to follow Fir'aun, and they were killed for it. SubhanAllah. Talk about Iman right there. Exactly, yeah. So, and what we've touched on as well a little bit is that, you know, regardless of the current Islamic climate, um, where we see a lot of people who use religion for very self-serving reasons, the Quran and the Hadith um, should convince us that, you know, the attribute of pride is completely antithetical to paradise, to salvation. Um, And this is proved from the Hadith in Sahih Muslim, who has a uh, a mustard seed of pride in his heart, will not enter paradise. That's scary. So you know all these qualities that are are basically embodied in narcissistic personality disorder are damning, and and that's that's why I'm really passionate about this work is because I I feel that we don't talk enough about the dangers of pride in our community and what can it it can really do not just you know in terms of like leading people to hellfire, which should be enough of a motivation, but in terms of how much it, it's really destructive 
to people's lives um, in the dunya. Absolutely, absolutely. So when this pride is taken, when this pride in leadership manifests as an absolute blind obedience to that leadership, whether it's the president of a country, a, a parent figure, or an imam, or any type of authority, or, or even a husband or a wife, this is a part of that, right? And so this verse that I know you've shared with me, chapter 40, verse 28, for context, this is in Surah Mu'min, which is um, this ayah kind of deals with like the, the theme of the surah, which is that there was a believer who was hidden, um, who did not really uh, reveal his iman um, in the court of Fir'aun. Chapter 40, verse 28, the translation is, And a believing man from the family of Pharaoh who concealed his faith said, quote, Do you kill a man merely because he says... My Lord is Allah, while he has brought you clear proofs from your Lord. And if he should be lying, then upon him is the consequence of his lie. But if he should be truthful, there will strike you some of what he promises you. Indeed, Allah does not guide one who is a transgressor and a liar. What do you think is happening here? Why is this verse, how is this connected to the narcissism and the advice and warning Allah is giving us here? Um, so we know from the, like the tafsir that there were actually at least two people who were close to Fir'aun who, who were believers. One was his wife, um, which, you know, when you think about it, is incredibly brave of her, um, Asia. Um, and then the other was this man who is not identified, who basically said, you know, he, tr- he presented a logical argument to Pharaoh. And, and he said, you know, what you quoted is that, like, if you, what, what is the issue with Musa alayhi salam saying that Allah is the true Lord. Right. And he's bringing you proofs. And he's bringing you proof. And if he's lying, then, you know, he'll be in trouble anyways. Yeah, that's his problem with the the divine authority. But if he's truthful, then you got to watch out. It's your problem. (laughs) Then it's your problem, Pharaoh. This is your problem. Right. So um, it's interesting because he's not even saying to, to Pharaoh that hey man, like you got to submit or, or you need to uh, relinquish your claim of divinity. He's really just saying, why are you so intolerant of this counterclaim? Right. In other words, a narcissist is not open to any other possibility or alternative other than the meaning that serves their egoic representation. Exactly. So that the challenge of Musa was was two. The first one was that, Pharaoh, you are not God. The second one is that you are being incredibly abusive to a population of basically slaves, which was Bani Israel. That challenge did not go over well with Pharaoh because there, you know, from a political standpoint, there was no type of what you would call maybe like a democracy. There's no, there were no voting ballots in ancient Egypt. <laughs> no voting, exactly, yeah. Um, which is interesting because like in some ways we've come back to that in the Islamic world. It was clearly like my way or the highway in terms of religion, in terms of politics, in terms of people's personal families. Uh, because we know at this point, the way that Pharaoh was dealing with Bani Israel was that he was killing all the boys um, and he was using all the women in very kind of like exploitive uh, ways, you know, sexually, according to the tafsir. And so like Allah Ta'ala says, you know, like this was basically the, the worst type of trial for the people of Bani Israel. Total oppression. Total oppression. Yeah. And then, and Pharaoh's response to Musa uh, in chapter 26, verse 18 to 19, 
he says, did we not bring you up among us as a child? So he's saying this to Musa, and he said, and did you dwell many years of your life with us? And you did your deed. In other words, I know your secret, right, of that you killed somebody by accident. This is part of uh, Musa's story. And he said, and you are one of the ingrates, you're being ungrateful. So what's happening here, Dr. Osman? What is Pharaoh doing here? Why would he be saying these things to Musa, who's calling him to the message of Tawheed and basically trying to undermine his authority of Egypt? You know, it's so interesting because like Pharaoh, which we could kind of encapsulate as... uh, a eternal example of a malignant narcissist in the Quran uses techniques which are central to the fallacies of narcissistic people when they are challenged with logic or or with any kind of challenge to their authority. So one of them is appeal to emotion. So Fir'aun basically says, why are you challenging me? I'm the one who raised you. Uh, which is completely irrelevant to what is happening. If just because someone raises you or takes care of you does not mean that that person cannot be abusive or criminal in any kind of way. Um, and so that's the first thing that he says, like, I basically raised you. And then besides that, you also are a criminal. Um, and so he, he tries to detract from his own criminality with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the, his people by... Um, what's called an ad hominem attack, uh, which is when a fair argument is made is met with an attack on the claimant's character. So that means like, you know, whenever you have a whistleblower in any kind of organization or, you know, whether it's the masjid or, you know, like some kind of corporate setting and there's someone who's very concerned about um, the status quo, the first thing that the narcissist will do in that situation and be like, well, hey, look, you know, this guy's record isn't perfect either. Um, which, which really, I mean, that, that detracts from the central message of like, there's some kind of injustice going on here. Right. Which is also what politicians do all the time, right? I I may have a great point on the environment or, or taxes, but then it's like, oh man, he's making a good point on that. So let me, you know, find some dirt on him so that everyone ignores his actual point. Which... Is not Islamic. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> so are there any other facets of Pharaoh's conversations and dialogue with Musa Islam that I think can give us more insight into the modern context of narcissism? And then I definitely want to unravel a bit more the story of Iblis, because that is the, the package right there. in which Fir'aun tries to assert his authority with the people by enforcing this illusion that he is a source of all good for the people of Egypt, for Misr. So like in this ayah in um, Surah 45, uh, verse 51, 
the translation of which is, uh, and Pharaoh called out among his people, he said, Oh, my people, does not the kingdom of Egypt belong to me and these rivers flowing beneath me? Then do you not see? So he's basically saying that, look, you know, I'm the source of all goodness that you have in your lives. And, and this river, basically, you know, the Nile or the Nile River, I like this is from me, which is interesting because like we definitely have modern day examples of political authority who will make these types of claims. One thing that I have been confronted with when talking about this example from some people who may be a little bit skeptical is they'll say like, oh, well, that was in the past. And, you know, Egypt really wasn't uh, to the extent of, of what we have today, you know, like in terms of like global hegemony. Uh, but when you really think about it, Egypt was a it was a dynasty for for centuries. Egypt was the center of civilization in the world. There definitely, you know, was a sense that we uh, set the world current. We know the known world, you know, in terms of like we have access to Africa, to Asia, to Egypt, um, the Mediterranean, the sea, um, the pyramids, which we still do not understand as modern day people, how the pyramids were made, the elegance, um, the architecture, the artistic mastery, the writing. So all of these things, which, you know, they are all gifts from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which were made possible by basically, you know, not just people having the intelligence to do them, but like the, the type of environmental conditions which made Egypt so fertile, you know, especially with the river, which is so interesting to me, the mention of the river, these rivers flowing beneath me, and how central that was to his delusion that this was from him. So what I'm really trying to get at is that in order to combat the sense of narcissism, which we can all have um, as part of the struggle against the nafs, we really need to see our good deeds and, and give it up to Allah. And say like, look, you know, I'm I'm intelligent. I'm a doctor. Okay, I I've memorized a lot of Quran. I know a lot of Hadith. I can understand Fiqh. Really, all good is from our Creator, and not from us. How do we know some of the subtle signs of narcissism? And here's what's scary: is what if I am actually a, a narcissist, but my narcissism is cloaked with Islamic symbolism and clothing. How does that work exactly? Because a lot of people would assume, how could I be arrogant or a narcissist? I do all this religious stuff. I teach Quran class and I'm this and I'm that. So tell us more about how this looks on the ground for everyday people. As part of like what I wanted to talk about, I came up with a couple things where I felt like, you know, after seeing the narcissist um, personally and professionally, kind of warning signs to look out for, and that would be how much is gossip a part of your life. Um, and the reason I say that is because, like, if you truly depend on gossip to, you know, or backbiting to, you know, make relationships or form relationships, that ultimately means that you are scapegoating someone else, right? right? You're, leveraging, you're leveraging power socially through this means of backbiting and gossip, like, because you're creating a narrative about the person, which empowers you over the person, perhaps. Part of that in terms of like the, the power dynamics would be, how much do you also make fun of other people? How much are other people the butt of your jokes? And then, you know, any kind of challenge that is directed towards you in terms of criticism, what is your reaction to that? Is it rage? Um, is it to backbite or gossip more about that person who challenged you? We often talk about in terms of like 
picking a partner, how do you treat disadvantaged people? How do you p- treat like waitstaff at a restaurant or even more than that, the homeless, disabled people or anyone who's different than you? Say, for example, you have friends who are a different race or nationality or just coworkers or anything like that. And this goes into how racism is actually really just a manifestation of, of community-wide narcissism. My race, you know, whichever race it is, is better. You know, we, we have these accomplishments. Everyone else is not as great as us, um, which, you know, is, of course, as we know, both of us, is also very much a problem in Muslim cultures, not just limited to white supremacy. How much is complaining a part of your life instead of gratitude? How much do you blame other people for what's wrong about what's happening with you? How do you view your friends and relationships? Uh, You know, other people in your lives, are they just objects to use to get to your own success? Um, And part of that would be when you deal with other people in your life, like friends or family, do you feel like you do good for other people to receive good in return? Oh, you know, I did such and such for, you know, Fatima, and how come she isn't helping me with all of my projects? Um, That really just means that, like, you you did those things for Fatima in the first place so she could be of service to you in some way. And then there's the people who pretty much do nothing, but they're always expecting everyone else to do things for them. Like, hey, I'm going to be in town, Osman, you you know, basically I'm entitled and I assume you're going to pick me up from the airport. You're also going to take me out to a nice dinner and pay for it. And then you're, you know, and it's like the guy's just thinks he's some sultan, <laughs> have his foot, uh, foot massage the whole way or whatever, right? And so these are all manifestations of kind of self-absorption and a self of uh, grandiose value, right? That requires now other people to fulfill that, um, that sense of self. Let's look at some examples from the Quran, uh, where specifically the shaitan Iblis. So he is the archetype of arrogance, takabbur in, in the Quran. And in the Quran, in uh, Surah Al-A'raf, for example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the meaning, what prevented you from prostrating? When I commanded you, meaning Iblis, and Iblis said, I am better than him, meaning Adam, and you created me from fire and created him from clay. Tell us more about what this verse entails or how it's connected to narcissism. And it's interesting. I, I love this ayah, by the way, and, and it's a repeat, repeated trope in the Quran, which, um, you know, as you may know, it's, it's not a central part of the Bible or the Torah. Um, there, there is some mention of this in the Talmud or like, you know, what's the equivalent of Hadith for the Jewish tradition. But there's a few key things in the Quran, which I think are just so beautiful for us to focus on. Um, and one of them is that, you know, with the creation of Adam, alayhi salam, um, at, in the start of Surah Baqarah, like we, we know that the angels initially protested in some way or, or had a concern about humankind, and and I'm just going to paraphrase here that they basically said to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, you know, we are concerned that there is going to be creation who commits a lot of bloodshed, and and we're already here to praise you 24-7. The angels are his kind of, in a sense, his automated perfect servants, right? And so this is also important because 
perfectionism is a big problem with narcissists and certainly many people in our community. It's like, I got to be a perfect Muslim or I'm going to hell. So the angels, you know, it's interesting to point there because Allah already has those creatures and we're not meant to be that creature. This also connects to the earlier point of where we are mistake-making machines. We're meant to fail and sin or else the refinement and the true growth never really happens. But let's continue with this. With the angels, they, you know, their response that was met to them from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was like, I, I basically know what you don't know. A very interesting kind of like uh, metaphysical discussion that happens there, which continues with the creation of Adam al-Salam with the, the ruh, like the breath inside of him, the divine breath. Then he, there's a, a kind of exchange where he is asked to, to name things. And then, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala basically says, look, you know, look at my creation and what I've been able to, to make. And then he asks or he commands the angels and Iblis to, to bow down as a assertion of the superiority of humankind. And all the angels bow down except Iblis. And, and that does not mean, you know, that um, which is, is kind of like, more ambiguous in the Christian tradition that Iblis was also an angel. We, d we don't believe that. We believe that Iblis from the beginning was uh, a type of like righteous jinn. Iblis basically says like, well, I'm not going to bow down to this creation because I'm better than him. And the reason I'm better is because elementally I'm made from a superior substance. I am made from fire and this thing that you've made is made from clay. And so that's his first claim, which is expounded on here in, in Surah Araf. Allah Ta'ala first says, what prevented you from prostrating when I commanded you? Shaitan says, I am better than him. You created me from fire and created him from clay. In some ways, you know, I'm kind of expounding here, but I think it's just so interesting from a perspective of like the, the essential nature of humankind and, and jinn, especially Shaitan and, and Shaitan, who is the boss of the evil jinn. Is that, you know, fire, when you first look at it, is very impressive. It's quickly destructive. You can use it in ways to provide heat. Uh, but there are many ways it cannot do what clay does, right? So clay can be used for building things. Clay can also contain things. Clay can also contain fire, um, you know, like in a, in a pot. Even though on the surface, fire has a much more impressive display, and so, like, the way that I think about this from a perspective of character development is that fire would represent, you know, that the anger or the, the drive to do things. I would say it's passion, right? Passion, it could be yeah. passion, which is a strong motivation or drive to do something. It could be negative or positive, right? Because fire is also an element that exists in the human being. Uh, you know, you have air, air, water, earth, fire, and they all have dark and light qualities or properties. But shaitan here is doing what a narcissist does by saying, my, in my inherited or internal properties right and qualities are superior to the to others that's why others are beneath me so this is what shaitan's already doing but the fascinating thing is he's making himself on par with rabbil arsh al-majid i mean yes. shaitan makes himself on par with god assumes he knows better then he actually waves his fist at god and disobeys him and it gets a lot more interesting yeah yeah so then he he basically goes on this this mission to prove himself, which is continuing to this day, um, which will be, you know, encapsulated better in in the next ayah that we talk about, which is in Surah Baqarah, which um, basically he says 
or, or you know, Allah Ta'ala characterizes shaitan is that shaitan threatens you with poverty and orders you to immorality while Allah promises you forgiveness from him and bounty. And Allah is all-encompassing and knowing. So why does he do this? Why does shaitan threaten us? Is because he is so incredibly jealous of our status and envious. And he basically, in other ayat in the Quran, he says to Allah that I'm going to show you that me and, and all the people who follow me from the jinn will lead this new creation astray. And, and so how does he do this? with something that I'm going to call the poverty illusion, which is illustrated in the ayah that I quoted, which is basically, you know, he threatens you with poverty. He orders you to immorality. He basically gets us to sin and to, to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by inspiring fear of losing some kind of worldly thing if we continue on the straight path. Right. And anxiety is already embedded in the human condition because anxiety is based on the human being not having full control, power, or predictability over one's existence in reality. So that's by de by definition, as Allah says, you know, خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانَ حَلُوعًا And also the hadith of, you know, we have hem, uh, you know, we're anxious, we're impatient by nature because we want to survive and we don't have those absolute um, points of power, knowledge, and control, but only Allah does. So shaitan uses this as a loophole, perhaps. And and just the other point, which is interesting, is the delusion of shaitan, where he's saying, I'm better, I know better, and I'm going to challenge you, God. But yet, remember, Osman, before he gets to this, he actually still has to ask God for a favor. So the narcissist doesn't, he's not even aware of his own illogical approach to things he's like no i know better i'm gonna do and then he goes oh and uh, god by the way can you give me life till the end of time because if you don't i actually can't live till the end of time <laughs> and then i can't go try to fulfill this bet that i have with so you true. and then allah yeah. still gives him what he wants because that's allah right he's like i'll give you what you want even though he could have destroyed him he said yeah sure you have life till the end of time even though he's it's in pursuit of disobeying him so isn't that also in a sense a very interesting angle of merciful allowance of of a sentient being to implement the will the way they choose because that's what it means to have that ultimate accountability in the end of the day what are your thoughts about that point yes yes 100 percent. and and i would add to that that you know when you look at those of us who have been affected you know maybe as what i would say like as victims even though i don't really like that word but people who've been targeted by narcissists um which um, I guess I would qualify myself in that, but I won't get into my personal history, is, you know, we may question, you know, what is the, the wisdom behind this or why did this happen to me? And the answer really is that the, the world is a place of choices and, and the, the choices that are made in terms of evil are also out of the mercy of Allah um, to, to give people the true... Uh, in terms of like full free will that, you know, will ultimately create either their destruction or their salvation in the afterlife. Um, and so it's, it's all kind of like, you know, these lessons from the Quran and then our own personal experiences, it's all kind of like this human drama that we exist in for, you know, maybe 80, 90 years or less. Um, and then we face the consequences of our actions for eternity. This connects to the same story where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught Adam the names, and the name 
in, in our understanding, or at least from my teachers have taught me, it's that he didn't just teach Adam al Islam like real, you know, a lot of vocabulary. The point is, ism in Arabic means that you also understand the meaning and properties mm-hmm. and reality of yes. that thing, which means that Adam al Islam understood technology, how to construct things, how to take abstract ideas and give them form and turn them into products and bridges and so on. That was part of the knowledge of understanding the meaning of things. And if humans have this capacity, it means we have rational consciousness, which allows us to understand the sequence of things, the the cause and effect of things, which means, by the way, our choices become a lot more palpable and uh, valuable, right? Yeah. Because we actually can see beyond the abstraction of something. We can see into the future. We can understand consequences of our choices even a hundred years away. So this actually makes the human being very responsible and accountable with this power. And I think a lot of people sometimes miss that point around ism. What are your thoughts and how this connects? Yes, no, a hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's a that's a, a great metaphysical discussion of of why you know in some ways that we could have this status with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is that we were given this power for rationality for understanding of our consequences, and and the thought that I just had when you were really talking about that is that today the real st- struggle with technology has been the the use of technology to the extent that it's destroying the world. Um, Right, like with environmentalism and like with the the, the trouble of, of our carbon footprint, um, in some ways, and like and this reminds me of the ayah in the Quran, which you know Allah Taala basically says in translation is that cor- corruption has appeared in the earth and the sea because of the actions of mankind. Right, so so we we have this heavy responsibility um, which was given to us, and we have the books. And the prophets to guide us, um, and and really um, the choice for us as believers um, and people of consciousness or or people of of higher understanding is to choose the right path every single time, or um, for, for not just you know ourselves but for our families and by extension, you know animals, the environment, political structures, um, to truly kind of enact that that justice with ourselves and and with our environment that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us for this ra- this rational conscience that makes us a dis- distinct animal from the other animals because we don't have a problem seeing ourselves as animals by the way you know everyone's like oh you're just an animal like you know atheists like we, that's not a problem islam already tells us you are haywan and nataq you're a logical or a speaking animal we know we share the same building blocks as all the materials around us we're heavens and earth that's not the issue here it's really about this metaphysical reality that is a clearly observable which is our ability to form concepts bring them together into countless combinations and mental processes which can, can be directed by our will and this very fact osman is the way we contrast ourselves from perhaps other living beings where we can visualize the consequences of our own activity right in every situation to arrive at a conscious choice between these various possibilities. This is actually open to us and accessible to us as beings. Hence why our action and our attitude actually shapes um, our existence and our experiences and that of others, right? This is how free will perhaps t- 
ties into this, but we can get into a whole podcast on that. But let's take it, let's continue <laughs> on the way that Shaitan behaves in line with narcissists. Now that we've kind of described the contrasting power or gift that Adam has, now how does Shaitan behave in line with narcissists? Let's talk about the themes that we see in the Quran. And you were started with, with the, you know, he tries to use the loophole of our anxiety, which leads to fear and the fear of poverty or the fear of survival and thriving, right? In this sense. So what else does he use as mechanisms? Yeah. So, so basically it's, it's interesting because when we, I wanted to expound a bit on the, the poverty aspect and how that's related to our anxiety is because that's how he tricked our, our parents, right? Adam and Hawa, alayhim salam. Um, in paradise, he, you know, when they were in the Jannah and, um, he basically said, like, you know, this tree that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forbidden you from eating from, um, it will either make you malaika or angels or it will make you live forever. And it's interesting because already from the get-go, us as human beings and our weakness, um, you know, in the way that our, our parents behaved in that moment, there was a desire for, for something. Or a fear or a fear of, of losing what they have. A fear of losing. A fear of losing. So I'm here, I you know, things are great, but what if this goes away? Right? Um, and so the way that this works and, and we know that, you know, after that happened there were consequences which affect us to this day, which we can talk about in more detail. But the the real reason why I wanted to bring this up is that when we started and we talked about the, the flying monkeys. What motivates people to surround themselves with someone who they feel is powerful or, you know, in has some kind of capacity who's truly narcissistic is I believe that those people uh, deep down feel like their existence is threatened if they don't listen to the narcissist. Right. Because it's their means for enhancing their own social capital and access to resources and to value uh, in in their society, exactly, and and there are, I mean, to be fair, there are consequences, like w- what we discussed earlier, like the magicians of Pharaoh who were killed. What I love about Islam um, is that it really forces you to look at your perspective from th- both this dunya and then the akhirah, right? So, with those magicians, they they their lives were cut short from this temporal dunya, but but we know that they died as believers. And that, that is the ultimate aim. You know, that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can, is trying to convince us in this book, that your ultimate aim is that, you know, you will sin, you will make mistakes, but just die on iman. Right. Shaitan's whole point or, or his, his mode of operating is to distract us from that. And so with the, the flying monkeys and the narcissist or anyone who has like a kind of a satanic outlook and who inspires other people around them, they're really saying like, hey, look, I can give you some kind of shortcut. If you if you bribe this person or if you cheat in this way, I mean, you, you can make it up somehow, maybe later, but like it's really going to help you in the short term. Or like you're at a job and, and he convinces you to throw your, you know, your, uh, your co-worker Larry under the bus because then he tries to whisper to you, well, look, if you don't throw Larry under the bus, Larry's going to throw you under the bus and then you're going to miss out on, you know, getting that raise after all. So who, you know, who's more, who's more deserving? And in the end, it's like, it's all about that fear and competition. And essentially you're also saying if we were to put big cash 
categories here. It's ghafla versus dhikra, right? Exactly, Re- yeah. Remembering the truth and reality of Allah and those virtues and principles, or shaitan is, is using mechanisms to put you in ghafla, veiling you, making you heedless, making you forgetful, and making you afraid. Because when we're afraid and we're angry, surely we become forgetful and disconnected from our rational conscience. Isn't it true? 100%, yeah. So um, what I was saying about the poverty illusion is, is, you know, what people may ask is like, well, what, what's the solution, you know, in terms of believers, in terms of people who want to combat narcissism, in terms of people who don't want to become a flying monkey, etc. And the answer is to truly understand at every moment that your, your risk, your provision, which does not just mean money, by the way. means health. It means every health, not intellect. Everything, yeah. every, every kind exactly. of good, you know, like it, your, your relationships, um, the status of your marriage, your children, your, your employment, even like what my teacher told me at one point, like the types of neighbors that you have. Yeah, they're all your blessings in life. They're all blessings. Your risk is truly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all the time. And the, the people that we see in our lives, whether it's our parents or our friends, these are all just means that Allah places for us, um, which um, they can be, as we know, they can be tests and they can also be blessings. And sometimes blessings are also tests, right? So my belief is that to truly inoculate yourself, to vaccinate yourself against this type of um, this type of deception that shaitan uses, um, which is, as we have identified, ultimately narcissistic, is to have that iman, that belief that all good is truly from the divine and no one else. And I would add, I would add you know, for those of us, and I've, I've certainly helped many people through this real experience, and I myself have had a lot of anxiety in my past about certain things, especially, for example, when you're like a broke grad student or or college student, or you just got married and starting off and, you know, things are tough, right? So you may fear, oh my God, like, I don't know if we'll make rent or we, we won't be able to afford this or that. And then shaitan may come and start to give you immoral or even illegal ways to make money because that's more important than, you know, being out on the street or whatever. But one thing that I've learned is that Shaitan doesn't, when he tries to use poverty illusion, remember, ladies and gentlemen, there's, look at the evidence in your own life. If you're terrified of not paying the rent this month, for example, let's say, but every month of your life, alhamdulillah, you were able to pay the rent or shortly after pay it. In other words, you were never out on the street, right? Then this fear would be considered irrational because you have more evidence to suggest the opposite, which is that, alhamdulillah, in the end of the day, Allah kept you, you know, in a home, right? You had shelter, even though things were tough. And so sometimes shaitan also deludes us with making us forget or fixate only on the fear rather than examining the evidence that Allah has already manifested for us in our own lives, perhaps. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A focus on negativity, not being optimistic, not having hope. These are all, and we know that despair is is basically one of the, the most effective ways in which shaitan gets to us. Nothing can ever get better for me. I'm stuck. You know, there's no hope, which we know that is is never really the case. Even if, if things are, pers- you know, consistently bad for us in this dunya, there's always a promise of, of things to be better in the life to come. Right. He like he. It's like fatalistic failure that he keeps injecting us with, perhaps. 
So Dr. Osman, we covered many powerful points today, and I'd love for you to maybe uh, summarize what you feel to be the main highlights of, of today's lesson for the audience and any tips you would like to leave us with. And inshallah, we're going to do part two where we're going to explore more facets of narcissism, including exploitation, envy, arrogance, and the sense of self-importance and how these techniques manifest as well as how we can start recovering from this, whether we are around narcissists or we may have some of these qualities ourselves. But let's first summarize and close out today's lessons, PowerPoints, and tips that you'd like to share with the audience. Would love to do that. So, you know, we started with a kind of current psychological definition of narcissistic personality disorder. And we talked about the nine criteria of which you have to have five to really meet the criteria of having a disorder, a narcissistic personality disorder. We talked about why this was important, why um, or how the, the data shows that in the U.S., college students are becoming more and more narcissistic based on the Narcissistic Personality Inventory, or the NPI, since the 1970s. And we talked about why this might be the case, and we talked about the self-esteem movement for raising children, and we talked about how social media uh, basically encourages us to put a veneer of perfectionism on all of our posts and our pictures. We talked about like early childhood experiences where basically it's it's a problem of extremes that either um, the child did not experience enough love or infection was uh, love and affection and was kind of neglected or that the parent um, gave unwarranted praise to the child which led him or her to basically use others to keep up the momentum to keep feeling validation that they've basically become dependent on. Scapegoat and flying monkey and how a flying monkey is basically the yes men or the yes women who surround the narcissist and do their dirty work and how the scapegoat is the target of the narcissist is used to project subconscious negative qualities onto someone else um, as a way to relieve anxiety um, and also as a way to punish people who may challenge the, the false narrative which surrounds the narcissist. Um, and then we got into the Quran, and we talked a lot about um, Pharaoh or Fir'aun um, and the ways in which he dealt with his own narcissism and the challenges that faced him. And first, we talked about in Surah Mu'min, um, where there was a man who, who presented a logical challenge to, to him and his delusion and how basically his delusion was leading him to be illogical. And we talked about some of the ways in which narcissists will will attack others including personal attacks after that we talked more about shaitan and uh, the elementals and how he uses something called the poverty illusion to trick us into believing that there are immoral loopholes and ways to surpass or, or kind of circumvent what allah wants for us in order to create our dunya Excellent summary. I love a good summary. Yeah. That was excellent. <laughs> Let's get into maybe some tips or suggestions that you have for us based on those points. And next time, inshallah, we're going to explore more these other qualities and how to work with them. But what do you have to offer for us today based on that fantastic summary of, of the topics so far? Sure. So I, you know, in terms of like, what can you really do about this? I think that um, hopefully, inshallah, ta'ala, like if, if we just start really talking about this as a community problem, for Muslims, for the world in general, but especially for us, because we, you know, have these ties to to our own community naturally. 
let's talk about this. Let's discover this. Let's talk about why this could be a problem. And let's talk about things that we could be doing that um, could be narcissistic. And we talked about, you know, in terms of backbiting, in terms of putting other people down, dealing with criticism, um, our attitude towards the disadvantage, um, our, you know, feeling grateful or a sense of gratitude and how we treat other people in terms of like, our, is there a, a transactionalism in how we deal with our friends and family? So to keep that in mind. And then as overall, I guess what I would like everyone to take away from this first session that we had is to truly understand that our deen is not just about salah and fasting and you know believing in Allah, which are all very important things. But Right, but there are some narcissists that do all those things right now. There are some narcissists who do all those things, which you know to me personally was a huge challenge, and, and I really um, tried to understand what this could be about. And, and I think what I kind of centered on, which is um, the purpose of this talk or the essence of this talk, is that our religious practices are really vehicles to self-transformation. They are, they are not um, tokens in and of themselves. Um, to prop our ego, to be, you know, say like, oh, I pray five times a day or I do fast all of Ramadan and this is a token for my own egoism. It's really a process of self-transformation in terms of how humble is this daily, monthly, yearly practice making me um, and how much is it inoculating me against the tricks of shaitan. In other words, am I actually winning the battles of Akbar Jihad, Jihadun Nafs, which is the very thoughts and concepts and behaviors and motives and emotions that I have moment to moment, right? It's not just about the appearance of things, which is what we're really good at sometimes, right? We appear religious, we appear successful, we want or we want to appear those brands when the inside is rotten. This is what we're afraid of. Right for ourselves and, and our community. Yeah, I w I totally co-sign that, and I really appreciate this talk and how much you've been able to pull out these ideas from me and and how we've talked about this in in detail. Alhamdulillah, like it's it's really useful to have people who can understand your mission and your passion and also help you articulate it. Thank you so much. Dr. Osman, thank you so much for your time and knowledge today. Thank you. Look forward thank to you. part two recording very soon. Inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam.